What does integrity mean? Well, it has the same root as the word integer. What is integer? If you think back to elementary school math, right? An integer is a whole number. There's no decimals, there's no fractions. It's the same through and through. So as a person of integrity, your goal, your effort, your desire is to be the same through and through. Well, hey there, if we have not yet met, my name is Alex Shedd. I'm the founder of Path for Growth, and this is the Path for Growth podcast. Now, as a business, we exist to help impact-driven leaders step into who they were created to be so that others benefit and God is glorified. If someone were to ask me, what's the thing you've read or listened to that has had the greatest impact on your life, your leadership, and your business, uh, the answer is actually remarkably easy. It's nine sentences. They're called the Beatitudes, and they are the way that Jesus introduces the Sermon on the Mount. They are his preamble to the most famous sermon ever given. And I love how Matthew 5 starts because it says, and then he opened his mouth and began to teach. I always think that that's so funny because it's like, when have I ever told a story about having a conversation with my friend and then said, oh, well, and then he opened his mouth and began to teach, right? But one of the things that's so helpful about that sentence for me is like, this was a real guy. He had a real mouth, right? And it helps us place this in, not into like the realm of mythology, but it places us into the realm of reality that this is something that a real man who is around 30 years old actually said. And whenever we remember that, and then we place him in the context of when he was living and where he was living, what he's about to say was radically countercultural and paradoxical. So, and then he opened his mouth and began to teach. And then he jumps straight in by offering these nine statements that are statements of what it looks like to be blessed. Now, that word blessed is interesting because today it carries so many different connotations, right? Whenever I hear that word, one of the first things I think of oftentimes is hashtag blessed, right? And anytime you see hashtag blessed, it's like a perfectly groomed family of four standing in front of their beautifully mowed lawn in front of their giant mansion and their brand new Escalade. And of course, they have their golden doodle sitting kindly right next to them, right? Hashtag blessed. Now, obviously, I don't have anything against gold golden doodles or even escalades. But what I want us all to understand is that that's not what Jesus is talking about whenever he's talking about what it means to be blessed. The Greek word for blessed that is used over and over and over again at the beginning of these nine sentences is the word makarios. And it's really interesting because it can be easy to believe that blessing is just an internal state. But in reality, what Makarios actually means is something more akin to distinctive religious joy. And so what these statements are describing is the heart postures that are necessary to experience distinctive religious joy, observable favor that is only achieved by being in contact with and communion with the divine. So it's the type of joy, it's the type of contentment, it's the type of abundance that when people see it, they say, oh my gosh, I may not even know what that is, I just know that it's so good and right and beautiful and true. And so that's what it means to be blessed. And what's so cool is Jesus, over the course of the next nine sentences, is going to lay out really a roadmap for the heart postures and the attitudes that we need to have 
in order to live a blessed life. But what's really interesting about these is they're called the be attitudes, and it's really important to recognize they're not called the do attitudes. So these are less going to be things that you do or actions that you take, although they will absolutely have ramifications for the actions that you take. They're more going to affect the person that you are. And what's wild is as we kind of start to unpack this roadmap to blessing or this roadmap to blessedness, we're going to find that the steps that we take and the person that we become is likely radically different than what we would ever expect. This is really made hyper clear with the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is a pretty interesting statement because a lot of times whenever we look at that word poor, we think, okay, well, this is probably has to do with our finances. And while this beatitude certainly will have ramifications for our finances, it is also so much bigger, grander, and greater than just our finances. It took a long time for me to kind of really uh, sit with this, pray on this, understand this, and then think about, okay, well, how does this apply to my life? And then even beyond that, how does this apply to my leadership? But but here's what I've noticed to be true about myself, and, and I've also noticed it to be true with the leaders that we get to work with every single day. Oftentimes, we walk around today with this longing, this nagging of not enough, right? I'm not doing enough. I'm not being enough. And it kind of results into I am not enough. We constantly feel like we're behind. We constantly feel like we're reminded of the fact that we're imperfect and we're fallible and we're faulty. We see the areas where we're broken and we can't meet up to this aspirational identity that we have for ourselves or this aspirational impact that we want to have on the world. And, and so we're walking around with this mopey, depressed state of saying, I am not enough. Now, obviously, that's not ideal and that's not good, but here's pop culture's response to that. Pop culture's response to that today is to say, you silence that voice. That voice is not true. You are enough. You've got this. You just tune out all the noise and you build yourself up. You increase your self-esteem. You are enough. And while I agree that it's certainly not helpful to just be walking around oppressed and beaten down by this reality of I am not enough, it's also really hard to live with pop culture's response to that because I can hear the self-esteem message and the positive psychology message of I've got this, but then I look at the reality of my life and I look at the reality of my leadership and I look at the reality of my business and I see so many examples so often of areas where gosh, I don't got this. I see my faults. I see my fallibilities. I see my imperfections. I see areas where I have grown, but I still have so far to grow. I see where I'm broken. And so the answer can't be, I am not enough. But it also can't be, I've got this. I am enough. And it's in that context that we hear, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who recognize how spiritually bankrupt and in need they actually are. I love that statement, the more you lead, the more you need. Because the reality is, you need help. You cannot do this on your own. 
And so what this is saying is the reality is you are not enough. That's absolutely true. But the good news, the gospel news on the other side of that is that Christ is enough. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he turns to blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, I've read in many commentaries that the second beatitude is the emotional response to the first beatitude's uh, rational realization. Because it's in the first beatitude that we realize, man, I'm not enough. I'm broken. I'm faulty. I'm fallible. And I'm weak. And it's in that that we say, gosh, that's really tough. Blessed are those who mourn, right? That we emotionally are affected by the realization that, man, I can't do this on my own. But this is so different than our normal approach to leadership today. Because the normal approach to leadership today is I've got this, right? We try to bolster ourselves up. We try to look really strong. And we try to say, I've got this. And anything that represents negative emotions like anxiety, like sadness, we just say, we're going to shove those away because emotions aren't efficient. And we're going to say, I've got this, right? And the tough thing about ignoring negative emotions is the things you ignore, you will never receive comfort for. And you can't certainly conquer what you don't confront. You'll never fix what you refuse to see. And and so whenever we say, I've got this, and we don't deal with or properly grieve the brokenness that we see around us, but even more than the brokenness we see around us, the brokenness we see within us, whenever we don't properly engage with that, well, we block ourselves from receiving any comfort on it. Because instead of living in reality, we're opting for delusion. But if you actually look at this statement, it's saying blessed, right? Which we already said, that's distinctively outrageously joyful. That's what blessing is, are those who mourn. Now, the Greek word for mourn there is really interesting because it's best described as the type of grief that you experience when a loved one passes away. So this is one of those wild, paradoxical statements of Jesus where he says, outrageously joyful are those who are outrageously sad, for they shall be comforted. And I think what he's saying there is outrageously joyful, blessed, distinctive religious joy comes to those who are able to reckon with the emotional brokenness of where things are because it's in that they will receive comfort. The third beatitude is blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, it's really important to understand that the word meekness does not mean weakness. What does it actually mean? Well, the Greek word for meek is praus, and it's actually related to something they would do with horses in ancient Greece. So they would go into the mountains and get these wild stallions, right? These aggressive, hostile, violent horses. They were Mustangs, essentially, and they would bring them down and they would break them. They would tame them. They would meek them. It's literally a verb. And in the process of meeking them, praus, they would bring that strength under control. Blessed are those who have strength that is under control, for they will inherit the earth. The other day I was talking to a leader and he said, man, Alex, as a young man, I used to be aggressive and hostile and violent and angry. And I just asked him, I said, well, where did that go? And he said, oh, it didn't go anywhere. It just became focused. 
And he said, now all of that anger and hostility and violence has become passion for a cause that I feel God has called me to. Strength under control. Those war horses did not become less strong. They simply became more focused. So what does it look like for you to be outrageously strong, but to have a reticence to use that strength? And that anytime you do use that strength, it's not in service of yourself or your ego or your kingdom. Rather, it's in service of others and in the building of God's kingdom. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The next beatitude is blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. One of the greatest responsibilities, but also opportunities for leaders is to make decisions, right? Nothing is worse than an indecisive leader. Why is that? Because it really hurts to sit on a fence. And so this means that we've got to be constantly moving things forward. We've got to be constantly trudging into new territory. We've got to constantly be going into the unknown and making it known. And that can be a really scary state because we don't necessarily have a framework or a process or an understanding of how do I make these decisions? I'm operating in uncharted territory. And so it's really crucial that we have a model or a filter for how we make decisions. Peter Drucker was the father of modern management, and he used to say that the most effective executives don't make a great many decisions. He says they make the fewest number of decisions at the highest possible conceptual level. Now, how does that relate to this verse? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Is your primary filter for making decisions, what is the right thing to do? Because that's this high concept. And if that is your immovable, non-negotiable value, what is the right thing to do? What is the righteous thing to do? And that's what I want. Regardless of the ramifications, regardless of the popularity, regardless of the convenience, I'm hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And so this is the attitude you've got to have about yourself is that my primary filter that I'm going to engage with whenever I approach any big decision or any decision at all, for that matter, is what is the right thing to do? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This is really a call to integrity. And it's important to understand that integrity, oftentimes when we hear that word, we think, oh, it means don't lie, cheat, or steal. And while integrity does mean that, it also means so much more than that. What does integrity mean? Well, it has the same root as the word integer. What is integer? If you think back to elementary school math, right, an integer is a whole number. There's no decimals. There's no fractions. It's the same through and through. So as a person of integrity, your goal, your effort, your desire is to be the same through and through. Next, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I love this idea of purity of heart. It's important to understand that biblically, whenever we read the word heart, it doesn't really relate to how we often think of the word heart and 
Western civilization today. Because when we hear the word heart, we say, oh, that's our emotions, right? It's our emotional center. And while the biblical idea of heart does encompass our emotions and include our emotions, it really goes so much deeper than that, right? It's the core of our being. It's our will, our intellect, and our emotions all combined together. It's the center of who we are. It's where all of our convictions live and our desires live. And so it's in that context that the verse says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You know what it's like when you know your deepest intentions, convictions, desires, emotions are pure. And conversely, you also know what it's like when your convictions, your beliefs, and your desires are selfish or vain or overly ambitious or shallow. And what this verse says is that you become outrageously blessed. You become outrageously, distinctively joyful whenever the core of your being towards your conversations, towards your priorities, towards your responsibilities is pure. And the outcome of that, whenever you have a purity of heart, is that you get to see God. And here's what I often recognize as it relates to this verse is when I spend time in the morning inviting God to purify my heart and making sure that I confess and get rid of uh, any deviating way or motive within me. What's crazy is if I take the time to do that, which I'm far from perfect on it, but when I take the time to do that, it's amazing how For the rest of that day, I look around and I just happen to see God. And on the days where I don't do it, it's not that he's not there. It's just that I can't see him. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Next, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Here's the thing that I want you to understand that is uniquely applicable to leaders as it relates to this beatitude. There's a huge difference between being a peacemaker and a peacekeeper. I love that quote. I think it was Ronald Reagan that originally said it, that he said, peace is not an absence of conflict. Rather, it is the ability to handle conflict by peaceful means. And so your goal, your objective as a leader should be peace. But there will be times that you have to wade courageously into things that are hairy, things that are messy, things that are broken, things that are disjointed, things that represent outrageous, incomprehensible disagreement. And instead of shying away from that, that's not what Jesus is advising here, right? You're going to be a leader that says, I'm going to step right into that. As Andy Stanley would say, I'm going to invite the 5,000-pound gorilla into the room, and we are going to figure this thing out. Jesus was someone that moved towards brokenness. He moved towards conflict. He moved towards disengagement. Oftentimes, his words were the cause of conflict, right? But he didn't shy away from that. He engaged with it. But then think about the way that he engaged with it. When things got riled up, he refused to get riled up. He represented someone that was perfectly measured and balanced and consistent and steady and pure. 
And so are you the type of person that is conflict avoidant? That is not what it looks like to be a peacemaker. What it looks like to be a peacemaker is to say, I prioritize and value peace so long that I am not going to allow this conflict to fester because conflict never goes away when it's ignored. It just grows. And so what does it look like for you to proactively and positively make peace? Next, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, many people think this is the end of the Beatitudes um, because he closes it out with the same way that he opened it. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The thing that I want you to understand about this is that this is so wildly abnormal, and this is what so often, if we're not careful, we can forget is true about Christianity because so often I get this idea about Christianity of, oh, I'm a Christian, therefore my life is easier. No, that is not what Jesus said at all. It's actually the opposite of that, that there will be times when you do the right thing, when you say the right thing, when you choose the right path, and not in spite of the fact of that, but rather because you chose to do the right thing, you will be persecuted. You will be persecuted in such a way that you may lose money. You will be persecuted in such a way that you may be disapproved of culturally. You will be persecuted in such a way that you may lose friends and relationships, right? Because if you are truly making peace, if you are truly striving for what's right, well, that's going to cause some conflict like we already talked about. And there will be ways where you experience the punishment and the challenge and the persecution associated with that conflict. But what we need to remember is that when you do that, you are blessed and yours is the kingdom of heaven. Because what that means is if you're able to endure that persecution here on earth, what that means is that you're not living for the kingdom of this earth. It means that you've got your eyes set on something so much higher, so much grander, so much greater. And that's what we have to keep in mind. There will be times where you get punished for doing the right thing. Does that mean it's the wrong thing? No. But here's the other thing I want to make sure we understand about this. So often, especially in Christian circles, when things don't go our way or when people disapprove of us or when decisions are made against us, it's so easy for us to say, oh, I'm being persecuted. I'm being persecuted. It's happening. But remember what the verse said. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. What does that mean? It means that your intent and desire was to do the right thing. And in the process of doing the right thing, that's why you were persecuted. That's the path towards blessing. It's not, oh, I had impure motives, impure actions, unwise behaviors, and I acted in all those ways. I said some wrong things. And because of all that, I got persecuted and now I get to play the persecution card. That's not what the verse says. So it's really wise to do what Jesus says later, which is to take the log out of our own eye before pointing out the speck in someone else's and make sure that we do an internal examination to say, God, am I actually in the right here? Or were there things that I did that were off, that were incorrect, that were wrong? Because that is often the case. And I need to make sure I correct for that instead of just playing the persecution card. And then finally, Jesus closes the Beatitudes with his ninth sentence. For the previous eight sentences, he said, blessed are those, blessed are those, blessed are those, blessed are those. And now he makes it wildly and radically personal. He says, blessed are you when others revile you, 
persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. For great is your reward in heaven. For so the prophets were persecuted before you. So he says that this will happen. He says that if you're choosing this path, if you're choosing the path of the Beatitudes, there's going to be wild, outrageous, distinctive religious joy associated with it. The kind of joy that only occurs whenever you have distinct contact with the divine, with the power and goodness and graciousness and love of God. But he reminds us, this will not be an easy path. And it's not just a hard path for people that are in third world countries or people that are called to the mission field or people that are in full-time ministry. If you have been called to follow Jesus with your life and with your leadership, you are choosing a harder path. But in the choosing of that path, we get to engage partially now in the kingdom of God and we get to live in the hope and excitement and contentment that we will get to experience that kingdom fully one day. Well, you can probably tell that this material, the Beatitudes that Jesus lays out in Matthew 5, has been absolutely transformational for my life as a whole, but then especially in my leadership. If this is content that really resonates with you, encourages you, challenges you, and convicts you, my action item for you would be to spend some serious time in the front end of Matthew 5 and really think to yourself, how do these statements uh, kind of coincide with your personal experience. That's one of the things that I just love about the Bible is we think we're reading the Bible and in reality, the Bible is reading us. So I would challenge you to get into that and really take these principles that Jesus laid out over 2000 years ago and make them applicable to your life, your leadership and your business. Y'all know this, we're rooting for you. We're praying for you. We wanna see you win. Remember, my strength is not for me. Your strength is not for you. Our strength is for service. Let's go, let's go, let's go.